Welcome to Board Game Binge, the place where we bring you bite-sized, bingeable board game content across the industry. I'm your host, James Staley, and in this episode, we're chatting with David Brad Talton from Level 99 Games, the publisher of many popular titles, including the recent smash hit, Dead by Daylight, which has exceeded over a million dollars in funding on Kickstarter. He goes by Brad. Brad, welcome to the binge. How are you doing? Hey, I'm doing great. Thanks for having me today. Oh, it is great. I got so excited uh, to uh, when you when you agreed to come on the podcast. I mean, it's not often you get to talk to people that have done large campaigns like like this has and as fun as high as this. But not only that is the the history and the number of campaigns. We're going to get into this on the podcast. Yeah, it's not often of you campaigns. get to do a campaign. <laughs> I know, right? So you talk to people who have done two or three. We talk to somebody who's done like twenty four. Uh, man, that it, it's cool because there's a lot of insight. There's a lot of gold in there that are hopefully we're going to pull out uh, in the next 30 minutes. So thank you so much for your time. For those who don't know you, um, maybe you can give us a kind of a quick background as to um, kind of what you do at uh, Level 99 Games. Obviously, you're, you're in charge, but you know, kind of where that all started, the whole Level 99 Games. Yeah, so we started this up back in about 2011, and I was just working on my own as a contract programmer making iPhone apps. And uh, I'd always been into board games. I designed games all through college, all through my youth, um, and I played them with my parents and not my cousins. And then I got to college, and I was like, oh, there's a real industry here. That's cool. I can like collect all these games. And then 2011 came around, and I saw Kickstarter appear, and I saw actually uh, TMG uh, fund Imminent Domain on yeah. Kickstarter. And I was like, well, I could do that. And so I put up the game that I was working on at the time. That was the first Battlecon game. And um, and it funded. And it funded. Uh, I think it, it raised about $25,000. And yep. I only lost about $15,000 on it. So it was a smash success for my first project. <laughs> yeah. To get the five digits on your, on your first campaign is, is quite an accomplishment. Yeah. Um, and in 2011, like that's like right at the beginning, right? When people started yeah. first going on Kickstarter with board games, what was the environment like back then? Like, was it, was it kind of just you or did you see too it, many? Other I mean, it was the were... wild west, right? Like we didn't have uh like stretch goals, we didn't have um, you know, like early birds, like all these incentives came around like after like as I was watching the platform unfold, you know, like we had we just like stretch goals were kind of discovered um around the time of my first project. And so we introduced a couple stretch goals late in the project and like that's the kind of era it was. Uh, we were discovering these things and our fans were like, hey, you've already funded. Shouldn't you give us more stuff? <laughs> and we're like, okay, sure. We'll make up some more stuff to give you. Um, and we did. Um, that was that was the era that it was. And um, like we didn't have a lot of, we didn't have any of the big CMONs or like giant million dollar campaigns. We didn't have um, a ton of like, like the, the scandals. People weren't as, you know, as cautious about backing a project and you could really just as an indie show up with your idea and do it. And things have changed a lot since then. Not that you oh, can't yeah. these days, but it's definitely a lot harder to show up with a brand new idea. Um, and with the level of graphic design that I, that I had or didn't have back then <laughs> and, uh, and still make it. So, um, yeah, so it was it was a neat time, and you know when we we continued to work and compound on that success, and 
you know, our second uh, project was like 40K and then our third project, we finally broke a hundred and then it went on and on. And finally, um, I think our first really big breakout success was, um, was Millennium Blades, mm. uh, which is a board game about collectible trading card games. You're a, a CCG player and you collect cards and play against the other players in a board game format. Um, so anyway, we, we did that and that was a kind of our first big success, but we've never, we never broke a million dollars on a project after 24 projects. So I would kind of say it's a, it's a story of, you know, of not quite like smash success, but of the sort of enduring success. Like we made it yeah, without point. a huge breakout hit yeah. uh, for 10 years. And that's kind of cool too. So how many were you, so is that like, I guess, two and a half games on average per year or campaigns you're doing or how many campaigns yeah. were you doing? Yeah, we had a lot of campaigns. Um, a lot of those campaigns are reprints. So it's okay. it's not always a new game. Sometimes it's just a new expansion or even just a mini expansion yeah. and a reprint um, because, you know, we, we, as a small company, we didn't have great distribution options open to us. So we couldn't just reprint and have, you know, somebody like Asmodee foot the bill for the reprint. We had to fund it all ourselves um you know and that's uh that's a big deal when you're a small company yeah uh, so but that's uh, crazy it when when it is interesting when i was kind of doing the research before we um you know before before today and i was looking at that first campaign because i want to see the evolution because again it's not often you talk to my like there's a lot of people i've talked to that like you know 2014 2015 kind of got in around then to, you might be the earliest i think personal <laughs> campaign i've talked to it, like so I don't even think Jamie Stagmire even uh, started that far. I think he was even 2012, maybe 20, 2013. Yeah, um, yeah, I think so. Yeah, but so I look at the evolution of you know that first campaign and the amount of graphic you had versus now, and it is leagues and leagues apart. And you can see, obviously, there's been learnings along the way. Do you reflect back on your prior campaigns and say, gosh, you know, what can we do to level this one up or, or, you know, this is maybe what worked and let, let's carry that forward or what's your yeah, approach? I mean, we, um, you know, in our organization and there's um, like five of us that are working full time yeah. and, you know, a bunch of part-timers and contractors as well. Um, but we always take a look back at each project and have a post-mortem and everybody writes down all the things that they think went really right or really wrong. And, you know, we compile all those together and we distribute them to the whole team and we, you know, have a big discussion. Like, here's what we want to change with our next project. Here's what went right for us. Um, here's what didn't work so well. And it's in all spheres. It's in the customer service. It's in the production process. It's in the marketing um, you know, every aspect of this we've, um, you know, we've kind of codified and built a process around. So we really have, and I'd say this is an innovation of maybe even just the last two or three years, yeah. but we have a, an operating process that we use to, to build and get these games out and we're constantly trying to improve on it. So, so yes, I'd say, but I would say the introspection is fairly recent. And you can see that between, in the early years, there's not a lot of improvement. Yeah. It's just whatever I learned naturally, because I was the one doing most of the graphics back then. Sure. So, and then, yeah. have you found that, um, I mean, again, the number of games, number of titles you guys have had, how have you handled the the distribution so i mean obviously you have your website where people can buy through there and you've got you know the kickstarter platform 
But if you had to kind of build out, I imagine you would have had to build out an infrastructure globally, right? To, to kind of handle your games ongoing. And, and what does that yeah. look like for you guys? Well, it's changed a lot in the past few years. Yeah. So we, um, we've had, so first off, let me say that like 80 to 90% of the business is direct to consumer sales. And that's how it's been pretty much since the start. Um, we had a distribution uh, agency, um, what we call a consolidator in this mm -hmm. industry um, called, uh, called um, Impressions Advertising, okay. uh, previously Wizards Attic, now they're uh, Flat River Group, um, or they were recently bought by Flat River Group, and they um, would keep all of our games, floor those, and sell them to retailers and distributors on consignment yeah. for us. Um, recently, we have gone to exclusive distribution with Asmodee. So Asmodee mm. owns all of our like English B2B, like business to business type of uh, sales. So they yeah. sell to the retailers on our behalf. They sell to um, other like international distributors, the English editions on our behalf. And that works really well because they're actively going out and making calls and learning about the games. I actually got to go up to Asmodee's office last week and meet their sales team and play some of our games with them. And oh, there's, cool. there's such cool folks. It was a lot of fun. It was really neat. And they're all really knowledgeable too. Like I got to yeah. learn a lot by talking to them about how the global distribution and even how national distribution works. So it was, it was super fun. Um, did they reach out to you or did you reach out to them or how did that relationship come together? Yeah, I reached out to them through um, through a friend who had told me about his good experience working with Asmodee. So, yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah, and it took us a couple months to get it all squared away. You know, they've they've been having a lot of changes of their own, but sure. we got it set up. And now, you know, when we want to print a new run of a game, we don't have to go to Kickstarter. We can say, hey, Asmodee, will you buy like 3,000 of the new game? And, you know, and then we add on, you know, however many thousand we want for our direct to consumer business and, you know, and order them all at once, split them at port. And it's, it's a much easier, um, you know, easier thing for us to do. Yeah, absolutely. So, Especially with the, I mean, the shipping, right? So mm -hmm. and I think we're seeing a lot of publishers do this now, right? Where, you know, even three years ago, you know, there, there was a model where you could try to do it all yourself. Right. And say, okay, I'm going to take care. I'm going to try split this up. I'm going to try and maximize my profit by setting up these direct relationships with these distributors around the world, or even mm -hmm. retailers in some cases. And the, the costs have been so insane uh, over this past uh, year, year and a half. And they keep climbing that I think it's forcing a lot of people to kind of relook at the model, right. And, and look at it differently and say, mm -hmm. okay, is there partnerships maybe we can set up that will help us make this more efficient? Or is there ways that yeah. we can consolidate it to make it more efficient because i think that model of the past of saying you know i'm going to take care of these kind of direct relationships around the globe uh is really risky right it's really yeah. risky. well and it's it's really good when you have a large partner that is globally connected because they exactly. buy your games you know like ex works they'll you deliver it at port yeah. and you know and it's theirs at that point and you don't have to worry about the shipping or timelines or etc cetera, etc cetera. But yeah, global logistics has always been a challenge uh, for a company our size. Yeah. And, you know, we found a lot of great partners um, over the years, but it has been a challenge. And, you know, I think it'll continue to be as, you know, especially in light of current events, yeah. everything's, everything's real up in the air. Um, and you just have to trust your partners. I think that's yeah, exactly. what it comes down to is, yeah, good partners you can trust. So speaking of partners, uh, mm -hmm. Dead by Daylight. So yeah. when did this whole thing start? 
start? Like when did the idea start of kind of adapting the video game and like, how did this all come about? Yeah. So it was uh, early summer last year, actually. Oh, that's and soon. Okay. That's not that far yeah. away. Yeah. No, no, it was, it was quite, quite recent. And we, yeah. um, my team, like, you know, here in the office, we were getting into Dead by Daylight and I was like, well, I could just, you know, I said, I, I had a cool idea for a game. I said, well, I'll send them an email and see what happens. And it turns out they were actually shopping for a game. They were engaging with publishers and talking about it. And so um, I was the publisher that actually had a prototype to show them at that time. And they played the prototype, um, really enjoyed it. We talked a bit more. We said, you know, we could deliver in October 2022, uh, but we got to start now, now, now. And they said, okay, let's, uh, let's, let's do it. And so we started working on the game and, um, you know, and it's, it's been really cool. Um, Behavior and Active is actually also a Canadian company. So they're yeah. based up there with y'all. And um, yeah, it was, um, it's been really neat. I, I guess I don't know like where to start talking about all the details of licensing, but um, I'm happy well, to answer th- any questions. Let me throw a couple at you here. So first sure. of all, um, I kind of want to just pick apart a little bit of what you're talking about there. Cause I, I, mm-hmm. I, I love the details of these kind of things. I find it just fascinating. So you approach them with a, an idea for how to basically make a board game out of their, out of their video game IP. Mm-hmm. And you had an idea for a game. Was the game idea already set up specifically for uh, Dead by Daylight, or was it an, a game idea that was generic that could have been skinned with different, well, different things? Uh, when when I um, when I'm playing any kind of video game, because yeah. video game board games is kind of what we do. Um, so when I'm playing any kind of video game, I design a board game for it. Sometimes that just lives in my notebooks. But I always do this as part That's of my, awesome. my, my recreation is I, I designed the board game. And so I have notebooks and notebooks, and notebooks full of designs. Um, and, and if I, and some, so some of these designs keep cycling around. Yeah. Uh, some of these designs are, are specifically made for a very specific uh, process. And this game was specifically dead by daylight. And, nice. um, you know, and it was, when I say like I had an idea I mean, I had a, a playable tabletop simulator module and a playable, um, you know, like like physical edition that we played out here in our, in our office. Um, and so we got to like version three or four of this game before I started actually pitching it to behavior. Before I said, well, this is good enough that somebody might, might actually want to spend money on this. Let's, let's, let's try and, and show it off. So you'd already skinned it with their artwork and the, 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 the game theme and everything prior to bringing um, it to them? Yeah, I mean, for our own internal testing, right? Like, this is this is just this is just us having fun at the office. So I put whatever graphics I want on, and you know, and I go on the fan wikis and stuff and dive into all the the little details to get everything right. Um, So I was it 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 was it was the process of me becoming a fan as I put together this game as well. Um, And uh, yeah, the um, so we did about three more versions after you know after the contract was was accepted and locked in and you know and put started putting together all the artwork and graphic design and everything like that um and we go through the approval stage you know get everything approved by um their brand department and then marketing and marketing something that really threw me for a loop because um i had never worked with an organization before and i've worked with some 
pretty large international brands like Capcom and, and such. Yeah. And I'd never worked with an organization that was as brand aware as behavior was. Like mm-hmm. they knew exactly what they were and what they stood for and how it's described and how it's not described and, you know, what channels you use and, you know, and everything to, to talk about this brand. And it was, it was so interesting to, to learn so much about it, about all the things that they do. And they have a huge uh, PR and marketing department. Yeah. And we had to, we had this five person team of us had to kind of plug into that. And they had like a five person team assigned to us. So the, the, the media breakout that they had for, you know, from their company was as large as our whole company. Yeah. Um, it was, it was kind of surreal, but, uh, but there's, they were really cool to work with and they guided us in all these things. And um, my only regret is that we didn't start earlier. I think we on our side could have started a lot earlier, um, but we spent a lot of time sort of finding our footing, working with a larger brand. And now in the future, when we go into future projects, I think we're going to be able to use all that knowledge to hit the ground running a lot better, especially on our own projects. We can replicate a lot of what behavior was teaching us in our own future projects. So what did they change? So, I mean, you're a board game expert. Mm -hmm. They're experts at the video game. You come to them with an idea. Say, okay, here, here's how we think this is. This would play out as an actual tactile, physical board game. Mm-hmm. Was there changes? Did they say like, okay, but you got to change this, or you got to change that, or or how did that that discussion so, go? Most licensors are not very hands on, right? Most licensors mm-hmm. are like, here's the artwork. You know, you put the logo in the right place, and the copyright line is great, so you're good to go. And they don't even play the game. Um, that's because it's just a, they, they completely, you know, they're like, you're the expert, do it. Um, with behavior, like the senior staff were actually also board gamers. Mm. And so they wanted to play it and see that they liked it and that it represented the brand. So we actually got like, um, you know, the lead designer um, and uh, the brand managers and some of the creative directors all together to play the game with us uh, and they had a great time with it and they gave us some suggestions and, you know, we integrated those suggestions, but it was, it was just little things, you know, it was just little things about, you know, make this more smooth, make this a little more intuitive, you know, this feels rough around the edges and, you know, and they're right. Like it was, it was a prototype and we, you know, when we make those changes and we smooth everything out and um, but yeah, but they were, they were really cool with it. They didn't demand that it was a certain kind of game. Um, what they said was, you know, you guys are experts and we expect you to represent the brand and, yeah. um, and we're going to check that you do. And that's what it was. And as a licensor, they're going to sign off on everything. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, we, we, we had a lot of back and forth on, on a lot of things. Wow. And like I said, you know, cause there are, they're very specific about the brand. Like these words need to be capitalized. Like these words don't need to be capitalized. Like you can describe, you know, this, like the, the situation that the characters are in like this, but not like that. And so, so there was a lot of specifics, especially in the like non-mechanical text of the game, they had real specific requirements. So it was, it was not a rubber stamp process. So, and I'm showing on the screen for people that are watching either live or on the replay. Can you give us kind of the, the gist of how to play the board game uh part of this i, I mean obviously it's yeah it, it's a quick overview but give people an idea and try to use descriptive language if you can for those that are just listening of how you would play a board game version of this of this uh, ip 
Yeah. Well, let me give you the overview of the IP first uh, sure. to start off with. Yeah, that's a good point. Those that don't know. <laughs> yeah. So Dead by Daylight is a video game. It is a, um, a what I would say, uh, I guess they describe it as high stakes hide and seek. But one player is a killer and the other four players are survivors. And you are all trapped in a labyrinth together. The killer is trying to capture you, wound you, and sacrifice you to this mysterious entity. The, gen the, uh, the survivors are trying to um, fix generators, which will power up an exit gate to let them escape the labyrinth. And so it's kind of an arcade style game in mm -hmm. that, you know, you'll sit down and you'll play three or four rounds of this and you'll get matched up against different players. And it's so it's a very bite sized sort of game. Um, and that was the you know sort of what we tried to replicate with the board game. We wanted a game that you could play in a single sitting that it was quick and quite uh, quite quick to set up and to teach and that you could immediately roll into a second game if you wanted to. Um, so in the game, it's an asymmetric uh, three to five player game. Two to four players play as the survivor team. One player plays the killer. Um, each of these sides has distinct personalities. There's 16 killers, 17 different survivors. They all have different powers. They all have different strategies, um, especially the side that the killer plays really affects both sides and how they're going to strategize and counter strategize. Um, the game is a secret movement prediction game. So at the start of the round, everybody will select where they're going to move in that turn. Then each of the survivors makes their move. And for the survivors, this is a coordination game. You're trying to get together with other survivors so that you can heal each other, so that you can work on the generators, so that you can uh, gather at the exit gates to escape, um, or so that you can uh, hide from the, the killer and predict their movement and, and try to counter them. On the killer's side, um, so after all the survivors go, the killer takes a turn. And the killer's goal is to find and tag the survivors. And once you tag someone, they become wounded. And once they're wounded, if you tag them again, you can pick them up and carry them to a hook and drop them on the hook. And then they're stuck there until one of their friends comes to get them off. Yeah. And while, um, so for the survivors, each time you finish a generator, you get progress on a track. And once uh, four generators are done, you can open the exit gate and escape. And at that point, all the survivors win together, whether you're on a hook or not. If you, if you open the exit gates, you all win. Uh, for the killer, um, every time somebody goes on a hook, uh, at the end of the turn, you get one progress towards your ritual for each uh, survivor that's on a hook. You also get a bonus the first time you hook each different survivor. So you're incentivized not to chase down just one person. It's nice to uh, you know, spread, the, uh, spread the aggression around a bit, uh, keep everybody on their toes. So if that track fills up before the survivors escape, then the killer wins. Yeah. Um, and that's the, the basics. Each of the killers has cool, unique powers. Like there's a guy with a spear gun that can shoot off and like can reel you in. Um, there's a actually like this pair of conjoined twins that can separate and they attack it in tandem from two different sides of the field. Um, there's a, um, a a guy who can like electroshock you and it messes with your ability to interact with the generators and and with other props in the arena. Um, so there's like, there's a ton of variety for every, every possible killer that you can play. Um, and I guess I'd say the, the other interesting and innovative thing about the game is, uh, props. So in the game board, there's, is this kind of connected web of spaces. And in these spaces are a bunch of face down tiles called props. And when you, your character doesn't have innate abilities to do stuff. It's more that when you're in a space, the props that are there determine what you can do. 
And at the beginning of the game, all the props are hidden. As you move around and explore and cross paths with other survivors, you'll reveal more and more and more. So at the beginning of the game, you have very few options. But if by the mid to late game, you have a lot of options on every turn you reach. And that really allows the game to be taught as you play. You don't have a lot of options at the beginning. Every time we flip a tile, we can explain what it does. It gives you a little bit of the um, video gamey kind of feel too, right? As you're kind of searching for, for lack of a better word, resources and props and things like mm-hmm. that to use uh, as you're trying to escape. The mechanic of the uh, this kind of blind playing reminds me a little bit of like Colt Express kind of. Is that is that fair? Like everybody kind of plays their card and they're revealed at the same time and that determines who's moved where? Yeah, like yeah. yeah. So it's yeah, it's like we all select at once, and then we we each reveal in turn and play, and the killer always goes last. So, uh, you know, as a survivors, you're trying to predict what your other survivors are doing and what the right. killer's doing, so you can avoid the killer and collaborate with survivors. And as a killer, you're trying to predict what the survivors are doing, um, and uh, and so that you can chase them down. Yeah. And we played a lot of games that were like full hidden information, like Scotland Yard style. Okay. We okay, so that was kind of the original version, and when we pitched it, we actually called it like cooperative murder battleship to to behavior, and they uh, they enjoyed that a bit. But we uh, but we yes, yeah, so we had like full hidden movement where there were no pieces on the board. You made your moves on on a sheet, you know, on a secret movement sheet. But what we found is that the game is interesting when you're being chased by the killer, mm-hmm. and and it's not interesting if the killer doesn't find you or if you know, you go the whole game without getting in a chase. Yeah. So in order to keep that tension, what we really had to do was reveal everybody's position at the end of every turn. So with this secret movement and with the survivors go first and the killer goes last, there's exactly one turn of uncertainty at any given time. And that always means that you, if you get away, you're getting away for this turn and that's it. Yeah. It sounds awesome and it, it i think for people that are playing the video game from the sense I, I i get from you know watching the playthrough videos and so forth and the reviews and everything which is very very complimentary of what you guys put together here you guys are really captured the essence of the game right of the video game but in yeah. a very tactile um medium um but what i've seen is that the the players who play dead by daylight really get into it like they yeah. They, because they, this is a game where you have a lot of memes and a lot of culture around it, and those come out in the board game. What I really think is the big excite, uh, point of this game is that people who love Dead by Daylight can play this game with people who don't know Dead by Daylight, and they can introduce another uh, gotcha. like section of their friends to what they love. Yeah, and I think that's really what it's all about. That's a good point. I mean, when I was looking at the campaign, and I'm gonna, again, I'm showing on the screen for people that are that are watching on the replay or live. The amount of minis <laughs> in this game is crazy. Like you, you get a good number of minis. I think is it like uh, twelve or fourteen in the base game, and then it's, if you, yeah, thirteen in the base. Yeah, and then if you get the uh, the expanded version, so the kind of I guess it's like the deluxe or whatever. Mm-hmm. It is uh, what seventeen survivor minis and sixteen killer minis, like. There's there's a lot of plastic and then, in this game. Yeah, right? and then there's generators. So the, the generators you can repair have minis, and they actually like plug in little pistons the as, as well, they start yeah. to... And then the hooks, yeah, there's hooks for the minis, and the survivors actually hook onto the minis. Uh, or hook on... Like, you can actually hook the survivors onto the hooks physically, and they hang there when uh, once you've caught one. Oh, uh, 
it's 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 quite neat. And um, so yes, yeah, so there's close to forty, uh, a little bit upwards of forty minis in the collector's edition. Yeah, um, most of those being unique sculpts. So. Yeah, I didn't notice the the actual pistons that you can plug into the machine, but I see them now uh, down below. I think that is, it, it's cool. And when you look at uh, your your pledge breakdown, the majority of your funding was actually at the collector's edition, right? Like that's yeah. where people were like, no, no, I want it all. <laughs> well, this is this is the kind of Kickstarter exclusive, right? Yeah. Or at least our direct exclusive. Um, we don't like to make it so that you'll never get this content again, but we do say that like this is what's available from us. Um, versus what's going to go to, you know, retail stores. Sure. So, um, so, you know, we didn't have stretch goals on this project. We didn't have a bunch of, of exclusives, except for, you know, it's, it's while supplies last uh, on the collector's edition. We didn't have a, um, like, a ton of early birds or FOMOs or, you know, whatever else is. It was sure. a really straightforward campaign. You know, $50 tier, you get the retail edition. $100, you get the collector's. And if you miss the collectors on Kickstarter, it's 130 in our online store while supplies last. And so, yeah, so it's 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 easy to go all in for 100 bucks on this project. Oh, absolutely. How did you? So I'm sure, again, I'm showing the screen here. So you guys hit. I'm gonna put this in Canadian dollars because it always sounds larger. Um, you got 11,546 backers, one million, almost 1.1 million dollars in funding. I'm sure once pledge manager uh happened in and kind of the the orders afterwards i know those numbers even balloon further even uh post campaign but what i found interesting is i looked at the the target was a quarter million dollars which mm -hmm. is far larger than um you know even some of your 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 prior campaigns where you where you ended up what drove the 250 and how confident were you guys going in that you're going to be able to hit that because it's a big target a eh? 250 it's it's a it's a real target. I mean, that's what it was going to take. When you do yeah. a lot of miniatures and a lot of unique sculpts, sure. you have a large um, fixed cost that you have to yeah. overcome. Um, you know, we were really confident in the um, in the product. We loved it. We knew that uh, behavior was totally on board with us, and that they were going to contribute a lot of um, of marketing, and that the community was going to get really excited about this. So we had a lot of data to to back up you know, our, um, like our bold claim. Also, I really like to do a real goal and not say, oh, well, you know, it's, it's like 10,000 and, you know, we're going to guarantee success. I like to put a number that, that communicates to, um, yeah. to the fans, like, this is what it actually costs to make this game. Yeah. And that I think, I think that's kind of what Kickstarter is really all about is, is that sort of honesty. Um, and that's the same reason we decided not to do stretch goals, not to do, um, all of these extra things, because the real goal of this project was to make it an all-in for hundred dollars and to deliver it this year, and that was the big that was the big deal. That's it's aggressive too. It's yeah, you don't see a lot of Kickstarters that do that. I think that honestly, like it's very easy to make a game that's too big to play and delivers three years late. I've done it myself quite a few times, <laughs> so um, so I really wanted to make a game that was just the right size to play and it delivered you know, on a, on a fast schedule. Yeah. So. No, and, and clearly it's, it, it's delivered. Um, so if people want to kind of follow along uh, with your company, as you guys, you know, continue to come with new games and new IPs, is there a one social channel you guys try to focus things uh, around for people to kind of follow and participate or, or how best do they do that? 
Yeah. So our most active channel is actually our Discord server. Oh, and cool. on our Discord server, you can meet fans. You can play in live events. We have events twice a week um, that are actually curated events. And we yeah. have just pop-up fan events almost every night where you can go on and play with folks around the world, learn the games. Uh, it's a great community. Everyone's real nice. Um, and yeah, and we're really, really excited to invite anybody that's interested in trying one of our games to mm -hmm. come and learn it there. Oh, that's um, awesome. Yeah. And you can reach the Discord from our website, www.level99games.com. Just go down the community tab and it's right there. And if, is there like, so obviously you guys, I mean, you're cranking out a couple of games a year. There's got to be something coming down the pipe. What is, can you give us a teaser of what you guys are working on next or what people can kind of look for? Yeah. Well, our next priority is, of course, to deliver Dead by Daylight. And we're really going yeah. to be fully yeah. focused on that for the next few months. But by the end of the year, we are really hoping to launch a role-playing game, um, our third role-playing game in history. Um, and uh, that is going to be a pretty unique game. It's called Adventures at Argent, and it's based on the magical school setting that we created for one of our board games, Argent oh, cool. University. And yeah, it's got a lot of cool stuff. I won't talk your ear off with it but it's uh it ships in a backpack and the course prospectus is your care is your your core book and it comes with the city magazine which is like your world book and it yep. comes with a big fold-out map of campus that you know that you can spread out on your wall or your table as you play uh so it's got a lot of real physical you know cool feeling materials yeah. and your student planner in is your student day planner is your character sheet and you go on adventures by filling that out Oh, that sounds awesome. Well, I, I hope you can come back on the podcast and, and talk about that game when it's ready. Love to have you back. All the best in this coming year. My gosh, you guys are just crushing it. Congratulations on this IP. And thanks again for coming on our podcast. Yeah, thank you so much. Take care. Cheers. This has been an episode of the Board Game Binge Podcast, hosted by James Staley. Produced by James Staley and Mike Bruner, with original music by Nick Smith. If you would like to watch these interviews live, simply subscribe to our YouTube channel, Board Game Binge, and you'll get access to live interviews, giveaways, and interesting board game content from across the industry. I can't wait for you to join us. See you next time.